Registry Matters is an independent production. The opinions and ideas here are that of the host and do not reflect the opinions of any other organization. If you have problems with these thoughts, FYP. Recording live from FYP Studios East and West, transmitting across the internet, this is episode 253 of Registry Matters. Good evening, happy Saturday night to you, sir. Well, happy Saturday night to you. Thank you, people. Somebody forgot to correct the notes. It says 252 in the line <laughs> you're reading. I noticed that as well. And uh, so now it is now corrected. But I was able to self-edit and make it all go through because that's the level of professionalism that I bring to this program. That is correct. This is a brilliant, brilliant podcast with uh, the highest quality team that could ever be assembled. I think that that's pretty close. I don't think there's anybody that could compete with you for this job. Well, I appreciate that. Uh, make sure that you, everyone, head over to the YouTube place and make sure you click the like and the subscribe button and get notified. And you know all those things to do to help Google know that you like this content and to share it across all of the land. And with that said, Larry, what are we doing tonight? A little bit of this and a little bit of that. All right, then. Well, I guess we'll dive right in, huh? So, well, we've got a question from a patron, and then we've got a big main event that's going to take hours and hours. We're going to be talking about a legislative proposal that's captivated the nation, and it originates in the state of New Mexico, and it deals with PFRs and chemical castration. Oh, Jesus. Really? Chemical castration? Is that a thing? That is a thing that's sweeping the land. Oh, my God. Um, all right. Uh, let's see here. Why is it my screen rotator thing rotating screen? All right. Well, I'll, I'll fix that in a second. Um, so I guess we'll dive right into this question that was presented from uh, a Dustin person. Dustin says, uh, I timed out for Megan's Law last year in Pennsylvania, but I had to. Uh, I had a passport with the marking on it for International Megan's Law. Does anyone happen to know if there is a process to get a new passport without the marking? Could be an interesting topic. I've emailed the dhsintermeganslaw.ice.dhs.gov twice, now in the last month with no response. Curious if there's anyone out there who has successfully done this. Might have to just report lost and hope a new one comes without a marker. Let me know what you think. It's an interesting strategy. I lost my passport. Though I think that you may end up with one with the with the marker on it again. This is such a great question. And unlike political junkies, particularly ones who are elected to office, they'll pretend that they know the answer, even though they don't. And they will invent stuff to hear themselves ramble. I'll tell you up front, I don't know the answer. But I'll tell you some things that might happen here but I truly don't know the answer and I don't know that anyone else does. That's why you haven't received a response from the DHS. What? So that's, I have, that's it. He's just screwed. Just. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's some questions we don't know an answer to. If you literally interpret the law as it was written, there is no sunset that I can see that would provide that you would no longer have that marking just because your registration time ended because your registration time varies from state to state. 
and this marking is a federal requirement. So it, looking at facial at the law, I don't see a provision that it, that would alter the fact that you have a marking just because you've timed out the registry. That doesn't change the fact that you have one of those target offenses. And the, the notice says that the person has been convicted of one of those the language is broad, but it says of, of a, basically it describes a target offense against a minor. So would, would that change if you got off the registry? I don't think so. You still are convicted of that offense, right? Cause, yeah, I mean, because it's just stating that there's a conviction, not that you're on the registry. Is that correct? That is correct. Which leads me to say that you wouldn't necessarily get an unmarked passport. But having said that, I have been told by people who've put far more energy into this than I've been able to put into it, because I don't travel internationally, so it's not a high priority. I've been told that their research has revealed that only people who are actively registered get the marking. So that raises a brand new question. If you've already been marked and you're in their data system as a marked passport, would they be doing new research if you applied for, uh, for a new passport? For example, if your passport had to be renewed or if you lost it, people do, I've been told, lose passports periodically. Would they go with the existing marking or would they do the brand new research to see if you're actively currently registered? I don't know the answer to that either. And I don't think anyone so, else does. So presumably, since I have been removed from the registry, that I could get my passport and not have it marked. That's what people who have done more research than I've done have said, that they've been able to independently verify that. But I don't know that I want to go out that far on the limb because whether or not you've gotten off the registry, you were originally, if you were ever registered, you were in the NCIC system as a registrant. And that doesn't go away. My understanding, it just goes to a lower level of it's not an active notification. It's kind of like a warrant that's been executed and you've been served and detained and released. That record of the warrant is still an NCIC. It's just not an actively outstanding warrant, but it's a it's an inactive warrant. I understand that the registration history is the same. So if they're pulling from NCIC, I'm really confused. One thing I've gotten pushback from is I've told the people over and over again, there's a process called freedom of information requests. And one thing you can do is submit one of those and ask them for their protocols and their procedures and their policies. You can ask those things in a FOIA request, as it's known. Why is it that those requests don't get submitted by people? Perhaps they don't know how to compose the request. Perhaps they don't know how to locate where to send it to. But that's the way we can find out possibly some of these things is by doing a FOIA, saying, how do you determine who gets a marked passport? Now, just be aware, when you do that, depending on where that request ends up, it may trigger a whole bunch of rattling of the furniture. And people may say, well, we haven't even thought of that. You may create new non-existent been... problems. I've been considering taking the slow route, not trying to emergency rush anything, but putting in to get a passport just in case I want to try to, to venture off the coast someplace. I would be, I would be petrified to give it a shot if I didn't have an easy way back. I'm not going to like try to go to some 
super exotic, far away, 12 hour plane ride thing, but maybe just start traveling down into the Caribbean or something like that to, to see how things go and follow what a uh, registrant travel action group says, as far as examples, like they say, we can go to Barbados. I would be a fan of going to the, going to Barbados. So I might try to pull that one off at some point in time in the halfway near future. Well, if the passport is lost, if this person has lost their passport, certainly it would be worthwhile to apply for a new one if one anticipates traveling. And we will find out, and that would be helpful to the audience to find out. We would have a real live test result. We would have someone who had timed out and someone who either got a new marked passport or an unmarked passport. This would be very useful information. But in terms of doing a segment, I'd love to do a segment, but who would we invite on that would tell us the answer that would know? I I don't know who we would invite. Uh, I'm with you. I think we've tried to invite the particular registrant travel action group guy, and he made some kind of unrealistic demands or something like that. I don't remember. It was a long time ago. I don't remember the particulars, but he does tend to want to give advice that I feel very uncomfortable with. I never want to advise anyone openly to disregard any obligation because the penalties can be significant. I don't tell people uh, to try to skate the requirements. I just tell people, please don't invent requirements that are not there. If, If it's not specifically there and you can read it in black and white, Please don't go out and invent imaginary requirements, but I suggest that people abide by what's clearly specified that you need to do. If it says you shall provide these identifiers, even though I disagree with them, I tell people, provide them. I tell people to provide everything that's required by law. Just don't impose additional requirements on yourself because you have a wild imagination. Absolutely. Uh, shall we move along, sir? I think I've done the best I can do unless you have any more questions about this, but truthfully, we don't know. I got nothing else on this one, but so if we're going to roll, if we're going to roll into this main event here, here's what we will do is, uh, we're going to cover this, uh, New Mexico thing that has the whole internet a buzz. And it's, uh, this New Mexico bill that would require chemical castration for our PFR type people. And uh, the bill is House Bill 128 in New Mexico, which requires chemical castration of those convicted of of sexual offenses against a minor. And I thought you liberal do-gooders don't enact any such draconian laws. And so what's up with that? And do you have any idea, like, what's the chance of this thing uh, making it through there, right? Is that your uh, your official position on that? <laughs> As it's currently drafted, that is my official position. That bill has absolutely zero chance of passing the way it's drafted. Now, uh, now it, look, I have been told by other people before, Larry, that, that maybe you come across as a little bit arrogant. How can you be quite so confident about this one? Well, because I know our legislative process here. I know the key people who will be making the decisions in terms of how this bill moves or doesn't move. And I know plenty of things that are uh, constitutionally infirmed about it. But let me just go back to where 
I had uh, originally put the question in where it says offenses against a minor. I need to correct that. That is not what the bill says. It's it's there's no specification of just people who commit crimes against minors. So it's anybody who commits within the universe of specified sex offenses. Before we move on, so the one you provided a PDF with that list. I I have it for the screen. If if is that an accurate list? The list of sexual offenses. Where, well, let me go look at what you have up on the screen. Okay, now just to make sure. No, that's just that's just a list of our serious violent offenses that you have there. Okay, so, all right. So then, that's not, then I will redact that from the universe of things. Um, well, do me a favor, Larry. Can you give me the name, address, telephone number, shoe size, where they go shopping? Who are those key people? <laughs> well, I'd prefer only it be Putin that I, I'm not able to give the names, but I can tell you I have deep and longstanding relationships with many lawmakers in Santa Fe, and they generally like and trust me. Wait, wait um, <laughs> who who likes and trusts you? I'm sorry. Maybe maybe they trust you, but uh, they like you. Actually, uh, who who would like you? Uh, well, it's difficult to conceive, isn't it? But uh, a lot of people in the legislature and the analysts and staffers like me. Isn't that isn't that strange? Uh, I think so. Um. In pre-show chat, you indicated that this bill is likely to make its way across the country. How many states uh, in some form or fashion have enabled something akin to chemical castration? Uh, I didn't do the research, but uh, the communications director, Narsal Sandy, did. And I, we think it's around eight. Good grief. Um, all right. So before we go any further, I have a roughly almost 90 second video clip that was broadcast on krqe 13 in albuquerque and you indicated that there are several misstatements in the video and uh can we discuss those after i play the video sounds good to me beautiful a house bill would give convicted sex offenders the option to get chemical castration if they want to be released from prison early and the state lawmaker behind the bill hopes it stops them from striking again there's no cure for pedophiles. There's no treatment plan. And 44.3% of them uh, will reoffend. And that's a very high number. Republican Stephanie Lord of Sandia Park has introduced HB 128, which would include Depo Provera injections as a condition for their parole. The hormone shots reduce sex drive by lowering testosterone and increase estrogen. The injections must begin within one month of release and continue through their parole. It only applies to sex offenders released early, not those who serve their whole prison term. Nine states have similar laws, with Alabama being the most recent. Representative Lord says a study out of Oregon shows the treatment drastically reduces sex crime recidivism. The groups of people who got the Depo-Provera shots in a five-year follow-up did not reoffend. And the people that did not get this chemical castration, the Depo-Provera shot, 60% of them reoffended, and it was sex crimes. If a sex offender intentionally stops the treatment, they would be guilty of a fourth-degree felony. You can read more about this story on our website. Uh, so you have issues from the very beginning? K-R-Q-E. God, it's really hard to say those letters together. K-R-Q-E. 
says that the person would be able to get out of prison early if they agree to this uh, <clears throat> treatment. Is that not true? It's a blatant falsehood. There's no getting out, out of prison early in New Mexico. Our system is almost identical to the federal system and that an offender serves their entire sentence less good time before they can be released. Good time can be as little as 15% or as much as 50% depending on the offense. A serious violent offense is only eligible for 15% meritorious good time. Now, that's what the list that you had there, that, that describes what a serious violent offense is. Uh, I see, I see. Okay, and then so let's figure out why KRQE in particular, why would they present it that way if the bill does not exact, uh, actually provide for early release? Well, you'd probably need to propose the question to KRQE and the media. I would have a guess, and my guess is they don't know or it's intentional to drive the ratings. Wait a minute, not ratings, really? There you go again. Why do you people have to make excuses for justify to justify false reporting? And how wouldn't they know? I, I mean, the, re, the dude, the bill is like what two and a half pages. And it doesn't mention anything about early release. So where did they come up with that? Um, poppycock? <laughs> poppycock. <laughs> uh, I've, I've, I'm not really making excuses. I'm simply stating a fact. They either don't know or they're doing it intentionally. What is your solution to false reporting? Do you want the big bad government to move in and regulate the content that a for-profit entity is allowed to put on the air? I'm really confused. Those on the right criticize social media platforms for trying to weed out false content from their sites, and now you're suggesting that the big bad government should be in the content regulation business? You people are too much. <sighs> you have issues with some of the other statements as well. Can you elaborate, please, on what's up with that? Well, uh, Sandy and I both agree uh, that uh, the representatives... Uh, Lord and Block, the sponsors of the bill, they don't seem to understand the legislation either. And Lord said, quote, since pedophiles are eligible for early release in New Mexico, for that privilege, they will need to agree to chemical castration as a condition of their parole. If they don't agree to these terms, they can stay in prison away from society and do their entire sentence. Her error, aside from being incorrect and inflammatory usage of the word pedophiles, is just totally incorrect because they already served their entire sentence. They're not eligible for early release. This will end up holding them beyond the completion of their sentence, which already happens. So what you do here is you get your 15% off if it's a serious violent offense and all sexual offenses are not serious violent offenses. You get 50% off, you get 30 days per month you know, you, for a good time. So your sentence, if it's 10 years and you get 50% good time, no forfeitures, it's a five-year sentence. You've exhausted the five years in its totality, the 10 years by serving five. You're then deemed parole eligible. But you've earned it because your, your sentence is exhausted. Then the parole board comes in and hands you a list of conditions, including where you can live and all the things you have to do for your parole period. But you've served your prison sentence already in its entirety. It's not like an indeterminate period like Georgia and Texas where they give you 2 to 20 and after a period of time you're eligible to be released and you'll serve the remainder of that prison sentence on parole. So they're just factually wrong. It's just not the way it works here. Then Representative Block said, quote, with clear science and support from the experts in favor of chemical castration of 
pedophiles. This is the most common sense legislation to ensure the threat of these criminals is dramatically reduced, end of quote. And as Sandy noted, there's very little support from science and experts. Most support uh, the opposite. And this is just this is just inflammatory, either deliberately or because these people are ignorant. Um, as the uh, as it was said in the clip, Representative Lord stated that forty four and a third of the <clears throat> the the ones attracted to the young ones will reoffend. And that number for recidivism is like, that's like 10 times higher than anything that I've seen. And do, do you plan to challenge that assertion? Do you, are you going to go march into her office and be like, Hey, get your shit straight. <laughs> uh, not particular. Don't plan to spend a lot of time in representative Lord of blocks office. Uh, but it's interesting that if they were really focusing on the, word that they use so loosely, then they would have narrowly tailored this legislation. This applies to the full universe of sexual offenses, regardless of whether there was anybody that would fit in that category um, that I starts think with you're a P. Having internet or computer they issues just at the moment. Did, oh, go, 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 go. Please continue. They just, they just don't know what they're talking about or they're being misleading. This would get the 20 year old college student because we have a four-year protection plan here on, on our law so a 20 year old college student who has sexual activity of a consensual nature with a 16 year old that's just five days shy of being 16 and he's two years i mean two days above his 20th birthday there's a seven uh, uh total of seven days outside that four-year protection zone he would be required to do this but that would be a totally normal behavior to have consensual sex with a consenting party. I don't understand how it is that Representative Lord and Representative Block can't understand this. But they never seem to narrowly tailor anything. They just go with a broad brush because this was handed to them by the advocates for the victims who want to have their their problems cured by legislation and this thing is going to roll around the country like wildfire and this is just junk it really is junk it has zero chance of passing as it's written right now and i don't intend to focus on this recidivism because i'm not a big thing i don't i don't have that obsession with I'll mention it and I'll say it's wrong but I'll move on quickly off of that because you can't win the argument you just can't because it's more than zero that is correct um do you think this argument would work with the people on on that that side of the aisle with that particular representative which argument uh the uh, talking about the recidivism rate and all like all of these enhancements to those coming out of prison so do you think that that should work with conservatives well should but it won't I mean, okay um can you tell me tell me what kind of arguments you would you would use against this whole thing so what are my brilliant arguments that i have in mind yes please <laughs> so with these particular lawmakers block is brand new and it's too early to tell what he's amenable to to be receptive but 
he's already told us enough by what he did by carrying a piece of junk like this without reaching out to anybody. It tells us already that he's not a very deep thinker. He's a follower. And that's a dangerous thing in this business that he's in. And I've already had experience enough through the time that, that Stephanie's been in the house to know that you're not going to get anywhere. It's just not a productive use of your time. But my uh, my brilliant arguments, there are several, which are far more compelling than, than uh, trying to focus on recidivism. First, there'll be enormous costs to the state for additional incarceration that this will apply to, because what they're going to do is they're going to, since it has to start a month before you're released, they're going to add this to the list of things you have to do to be paroled, and you will not be able to do it because you ain't got no money. You know, ain't got no, how's that for good grammar? Uh, our our, our uh, transcriptionist is going to love that since he's an English teacher. Ain't got no money, and they're going to be sitting there trying to demonstrate. Remember, there was a provision in the bill they have to demonstrate that they don't have any money before the alternate, which isn't spelled out what the alternate would be. It's not fully spelled out. But uh, so we're already holding people beyond their release date because we don't approve of their of their address that they would like to live at. So we've got uh, uh, we've got uh, numerous issues that are going to drive up costs. Now, that should be a persuasive argument to conservatives, but unfortunately, it isn't when it comes to crime. Magically, they throw their conservative principles out the window. And as I stated earlier in the podcast, our system works like the federal system, and it requires that the full sentence be served before the person can be released. Then they must undergo this post-prison term of parole, uh, and it really should be called supervised release. And the biggest difference is the feds. When you reach that milestone, they release you. New Mexico does not. And I will focus on the unidentified, unquantifiable cost to begin with. That's one of the things I'll focus on. Uh, and you think the the money side will uh, work with the conservatives? Well, it would if they were intellectual honest. No, it will not. But that doesn't stop me from doing it because it's the right thing to do. You watch them squirm and you watch them roll their eyes and you do that kind of things. But no, it's not going to work. <laughs> I mean, you can look across the country, I mean, Arkansas, Alabama, places like that. When you start making these arguments, they just laugh at you. They roll their eyes and they go forward. They say it's the right thing to do to protect the public and we'll worry about the cost later. So no, it won't work. But it's an enjoyable thing to do because it helps you build the opposition. And I'm trying to build opposition. I'm not going to get any opposition or any rational basis, any thoughts rational coming out of these two sponsors. So I'm not even targeting them. They're, you know, they're they're the last thing on my mind. I'm trying to build opposition. And you also mentioned in pre-show that you have another argument that the on the for the conservatives. You have another argument for them. Oh yes, I will remind them that that uh, that they spent nearly three years claiming that the big bad government should not require people to be injected with a vaccine. Of course, now the big bad government didn't require people to be injected, but I will remind them of that. And I will ask them to hold true to that position. Government should not require injections. And having said that, there could be a way to do this. I'm going to tell them that you can't require that. But after I say that, I'll say there is a way that this could be constitutionally done with the consent of the offender. The state would need to offer a benefit in exchange for the forced treatment. For example, an offender might actually be released from prison early, or the offender might be diverted at the very beginning from prison by agreeing to, to this sort of, of non-traditional treatment. 
if they agree to undergo <laughs> this. That would be a choice in a free society. But, you know, that'll be another flip-flop that they will do. They've They've pontificated for three years that, that the government shouldn't tell you to put, put in your body. But amazingly, we'll find a whole lot of conservative support for this. Very little, if any, conservative opposition. I'll tell you that right now from 35 years of experience, how this is going to go down. And so are you suggesting that if, if those of your demands were met, you would go along with this? I could envision it would take us a, a significant amount of time, more than we have in this session, but I could see that there would be a way that you could design such a program with it being voluntary and with benefits. Yes, I would be amenable to going along with a lot of things if they would actually approach me and say, hey, we've got this novel idea. How can we do this constitutionally? What would it take to keep you from being in opposition? But there, there is a sort of quote unquote, there's a provision in there that you you can refuse it, Larry. You are not required to take it. It just happens to then cause you to have... Is a class four felony, is that like murder or is that like jaywalking? That would be the lowest level felony that we okay. have here. But, but see, but, you've, already, you've already earned your release, though. That's why that's a meaningless provision. You have already served your time. So, so would, th this is sort of along the lines of the extra punishment of the registry and not just having some sort of mail-in card that you send in, but all the extra baggage. So this is on top of that you just completed your 5, 10-year, 15-year sentence, that you would get to go to the health department on a whatever, two-week basis to get an injection. This is on top of that you've already done your time. That is correct. If you are being allowed to stay in prison rather than being granted early release, my opposition level would decline somewhat because I've always said to you in our private conversations that if you don't like the conditions of, of true parole when you're being released early, you can always tell them, I don't like these conditions. You can stuff them <laughs> and they have another program for you. It's called continuation of your sentence. But in this right. case, you've already served your sentence. You have a second sentence following you like the federal system and we call it parole. And it's misnamed, but it's identical to what they do in Illinois, what they, what they call mandatory supervised release. And this is a whole different comparison. But if it were truly, if you were deriving a benefit of early release, I would have a lot less opposition. Do you have any other brilliant strategies? I will hammer on the unconstitutional of the bill is currently drafted. The bill is unconstitutional in several aspects. It's not constitutional to force people to undergo such a procedure. I'd call it barbaric procedure, especially when they receive nothing in return. In addition, the bill proposes to create a new felony offense for failure to undergo the treatment. That cannot be. A condition imposed, a supervisory condition, cannot constitute a new offense in and of itself. At most, it would send the person back to prison for the remainder of the previous sentence, which in New Mexico could be a very long time because the period of parole or supervised release, as it should be called, is indeterminate. But they can't hit you with a new felony for a technical violation. This would be a technical violation. So this is just riddled with problems. I mean, it's overly broad, and it, it includes the whole universe of sex offenses in, in the contact universe. Now, it does not include the offenses like indecent exposure. It does not include electronic solicitation of a minor because you haven't actually done the completed act. 
it doesn't include video voyeurism, and it doesn't include CP-related offenses, but it includes all the universe of contact offenses in that whole section of our sexual offense statutory scheme. Are you a first-time listener of Registry Matters? Well, then make us a part of your daily routine and subscribe today. Just search for Registry Matters through your favorite podcast app, hit the subscribe button, and you're off to the races. You can now enjoy hours of sarcasm and snark from Andy and Larry on a weekly basis. Oh, and there's some excellent information thrown in there, too. Subscribing also encourages others of you people to get on the bandwagon and become regular Registry Matters listeners. So what are you waiting for? Subscribe to Registry Matters right now. Help us keep fighting and continue to say F-Y-P. And... New Mexico is not unique in proposing this strategy. You said earlier that we you think it's eight. So a handful of states already have it. I, I did read the Alabama law and like it seems almost word for word that you could compare them side by side and they are identical. And very much thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Sandy, who works, uh, does the the research stuff at Narsal. She's a communications director. Um, and I'm not going to read the list, but it will be available. This is the list that you're talking about that is not necessarily so accurate. Is that right? Or a different list? It's the list below. It's where it says list of states. Oh, oh, oh I see that list. Okay. Uh, yeah. So that'll be in the show notes. Um, and uh, so is it bad public policy wherever it exists? And for a variety of reasons, the positive benefits are far below what might conceivably justify its usage. And the negative effects are medically serious being associated with various side effects, including osteoporosis, cardiovascular disease, impaired glucose and lipid metabolism, depression, hot flashes, infertility, and anemia. The vast majority of the population on whom it is coerced and forced through more acceptable forms of therapy and self-motivation will not reoffend sexually. The moral and constitutional objections are universal and compelling. From a moral and human rights perspective, the general consensus that is barbaric and reminiscent of our nation's earlier and darker forays into eugenics, as one study puts it. Chemical castration under the current laws is vaguely positioned between punishment and treatment due to lack of informed consent by the recipient. That was what Sandy said in her posting today, and that is beautiful. And uh, we do have the list of states, and I'd like to just uh, uh, have an impromptu discussion a little bit about the legislative process here so people will understand how this is going to go down without giving you a lot of details. So uh, if you have anything else on the on the main body, then we'll get into the legislative process, which is going to be free form. Uh, let's see here. Well, so uh, somebody asked, what groups publish stats about PFRs having higher recidivism rates? Like she said, I'm unaware... People have like looked for these and they can't find anybody that has any sort of credible things as far as I know, which Larry's going to rail back and go, I don't care about recidivism. That is what Larry's going to say. He doesn't care about recidivism. (laughs) Remind me again. Can you give me your 30 second elevator pitch on why you don't care about recidivism? You're going down a path that it's a, it's a distraction and a distortion. Because if you choose to engage in that discussion, you can't have the discussion on the topics that I just articulated earlier about where I'm going to focus. You go down a rabbit hole that you can't win because recidivism does happen. So I tell people, just like 
if we could learn anything from the guns rights people, you know, the, those who advocate for unlimited restrictions on gun ownership, the recidivism rate and the offense rate is pretty high with people who misuse guns. But can we agree on that? A lot of people use guns and they get caught using them over and over again. And they uh, do sure. a lot of bad things with guns. But I the, think that's fair. the people who advocate for them will advocate for unlimited gun rights, say that it's a precious Second Amendment. And they hang their hat on the Constitution. And they seem to be successful. So I tend to like to model my behavior after successful people, not failing people. <laughs> I mean, I just have this bizarre notion that you should follow success. So therefore, I'm going to gravitate to the Constitution because it works. And you can go down the, the fantasy path of arguing recidivism, and you can come in with your binders full of stuff if you want to. I've never seen it work. So therefore, I choose not to do it. <laughs> so I've had up on the screen for a few minutes the uh the miscellaneous states and if if it was available the statute. So California, Florida, Louisiana, Texas, Wisconsin, Iowa, Alabama. There may be another one in here. This is just roughly what we could put together kind of quickly from the FYP vast array of research staff staffers, staffies. These would be pages, wouldn't they, Larry? We have pages. We do. We have we have the <laughs> We have the best research staff that has ever been assembled in the history of any podcast or newscast. <laughs> um, yeah, so please, uh, you said you were going to go into the legislative process, I believe. Um, there are some people that are asking questions, and uh, I'll hold them until we get closer to the end. Sure. Okay, so the legislative process here is a little bit different than, than most states. This bill is a House bill, as you can tell by HB. That's what that means, House bill. That means that it's originating in the House of Representatives. Since we run a bicameral system, it has to be passed by the Senate as well. And some states do, uh, they double file the same bill. They'll introduce one on the Senate side. We don't do that here. It just clogs the system and we don't have enough time. So if something's not going to get traction, it's not going to get traction. This bill, I'm hoping that I can wreck it early on. I don't know if I can wreck it as early. I'd like to wreck it immediately. But after a House bill is introduced, or Senate bill, after it has been read twice by title by the Speaker of the House, then it's assigned to committees. So after, after the introduction, after the sponsor has turned it in to the Clerk of the House, and it's been read twice by title, the speaker assigns it to committees. In this case, this bill has been signed, assigned to the Health and Human Services Committee, and it's been assigned to the House Judiciary Committee. It has to clear both of those committees before it ever sees the day in the Senate. Well, my goal is I don't want I don't want it to go to the Senate. Now, if it does go to the Senate, I'll have to deal with it in the Senate. But when it when it gets to its first committee, which is scheduled for Monday, well, my goal is. I'd like to see this thing die on Monday, and that would be accomplished by a tabling motion. Now, since we have an overwhelmingly Democratic legislature here, this is a 10-member committee. It's 7 to 3. So clearly, the Republicans can't pass it without some Democrat support. Can we agree with that arithmetic? You've got to have a do-pass recommendation that has a majority. So we need 6 of 10 to get a do-pass to keep this moving. 
So that means at least three members of the Democrat Party have to vote do pass. So far, All right, with I'm me? with you on your math. Oh, so, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. So, so far, so good. Well, if it's 5-5, five, five, it doesn't get out. And if it's if – it's, uh, so what's going to happen is at the end of the presentation by Representative Lord and Representative Block, there's going to be at the, the chair of the committee, who's Liz Thompson, she's going to say, what's the pleasure of the committee? And the Republicans will likely say, move due pass. A member of the Democrat Party is going to stand, uh, uh, move to, to table. And a tabling motion takes priority over a due pass motion because the table motion is not debatable. So the, the substitute motion to table will be made in all likelihood. Now, again, I'm not a member of the House. I'm only a long-term advocate. But that would be the process. A vote, the clerk will call the roll. And if there's, if there's enough people to table it, that would end this bill for now. And if, it, if the tabling motion fails, then they'll proceed back to the due pass motion, which is debatable. Further debate, and they'll take a vote to pass it. And if it receives a due pass, then it has to go through some, some machinations to get to the next com committee. It doesn't just go to the next committee. It has to be reported out of committee by the chair of the committee on the floor, and it has to be the motion that due pass motion has to be approved by the body, which is just a it's a routine thing. You know, the, the committee report is your uh, Mr. Speaker, your chair of the Health and Human Services Committee reports after carefully considering House Bill 128, we recommend due pass. And then the committee reports adopted and it will be referred on over to the Judiciary Committee, which it's already been assigned to. It has to go back and get another hearing and repeat that process again, which gives me another wrecking attempt in Judiciary. And if it gets out of the Judiciary Committee with a due pass and goes to the floor, then the whole body of the House has to vote on it. If it gets that far, the body will approve it. Very few things are voted down on the floor. Very seldom does something die. It does happen. But if it makes it to the floor of the House, it's going to get passed in all likelihood. But that's only one half of the process. Do you have any questions before we move to the other half of the process? No, no, no. I'm, I'm with you. I was just telling people in chat that you're like, we, we normally have some at least roughly a guideline of what we're going to say. You're doing all of this off the cuff. That is correct. Now, when it so it passes the House on final vote. Now, there's some wrecking procedures that can be utilized in there. So, for example, if the chair of the of either committee is not fond of the legislation, and their members of those committees vote do pass, under our rules, they don't have to report it out the very next day to the to the floor for for adoption of the committee report. They're allowed to sit on the committee report for three days. Well, when you have a 60-day or a 30-day session, which we alternate between, if, if, for example, if some committee chair was not fond of the legislation and they held the report up for three days before they reported it out to the floor for adoption, you can imagine what that does on those precious days that are ticking away, right? Well, that's one of the techniques that happens. If, if, a, if a chair of a committee is not fond of legislation, they can take their time up to three days to get it out to the floor for the adoption of the committee report. So then, so the House votes, we have a 70-member House. So it would require, if everybody is present and voted, it's going to require 36 to pass. So it passes the House. Then it goes 
to be introduced into the Senate. And it gets assigned two brand new committees in the Senate all over again. It's going to be assigned to the Senate Public, uh, they changed it, it used to be Senate Public Affairs. Now I think it's called Senate Health and Public Affairs, but it will be assigned to the Senate Public Affairs Equivalent Committee, and it's going to be assigned to the Senate Judiciary Committee. And we get to start the opposition all over again. We get to come forward with new analyses. If we've got new data, new testimony, we get to go through public hearings in the Senate Public Affairs Committee. We get to go through public testimony in the Senate uh, Judiciary Committee. So we've got two more wreck attempts that derailed the, the legislation. And if all else fails and it makes it through those processes, and gets to the Senate for a final vote, you have a slightly better chance in the Senate of killing it. Not much, but slightly better. The Senate is elected every four years. They're not as vulnerable to angry mob mentality, so they can debate things more carefully. They don't have debate limits of three hours like it's in the House of Representatives. The Senate could go on and possibly vote it down. Not likely, but they could. If it gets that far, they're likely to approve it and send it on the governor, and the governor would be hard-pressed to veto it. Our job and your job, if you want to be an advocate, is to make sure you never let things get to the floor because they're going to pass. If you let them pass the floor, you got to make sure you wreck them on the second half of the process because if this gets to the governor, the governor has very little political capital to veto something like this. With the notoriety that we're getting around the state, even around the country, not just around the state, it would be politically very unlikely that any governor would veto such a legislation. This is an example of what you need to be thinking about when you get mad at Obama for signing the uh, uh, International Megan's Law. Amazingly, they don't get mad at Bush for signing that on Walsh Act, but you know, that's a discussion for another day. Amazingly, they're all quiet and silent about that. But Bush would have had, the, the, he would have been in the same position that Obama was in. You know, it, it got to him with almost unanimous uh, approval. He was not told there was anything wrong with it. And all the talking heads were saying, Mr. Bush, sign this. It's great for, for his children. All the victims advocate, law enforcement apparatus, most of the law enforcement apparatus are going to be saying, if, if this makes it to the governor's desk, she's going to be told that she needs to sign this. So our job is to make sure the governor is never given that choice. Because if we wreck the train, the governor can't sign it. Um, okay. So I, I have one super awesome, solid question after I ask you a few of my own, unless there's anything else that you would like to do first. Anything you want to do? I think I've pontificated enough about that. I believe so. All right. Um, so again, I, this, this bill is super short and I have it up on the screen rotating around on, on whatever, I don't, whatever paragraph B would be a person required to undergo chemical castration treatment shall begin treatment, not less than one month prior to the person's release from custody of the corrections department and shall, this is what I want to ask you about the, and shall continue receiving treatment until the court determines the treatment is no longer necessary. What would be the determining factor when treatment would end? Like, how would you determine what's the court going to do to determine that treatment is no longer necessary? That is a great question. And it would be like many other things that we have particular indeterminate period of parole and probation here for PFRs. 
it'd be one of those things where the courts would be, hey, we don't want this decision making. This is actually a parole condition. So the the uh, administrative office of the courts and the judges associations, they're likely to put in opposition to this because they don't want this job of making this determination. But there, there's no guidance provided. This is one of the many things that's wrong with this bill. There's no guidance telling them how they would make such a determination. But uh, it's there. This is an example of sloppy drafting and careless legislating by two people who really don't care that much about being good legislators. They care about apparently getting a lot of publicity, and they've succeeded. And I mean, I, I was I, you. You dug more into it. You answered a question before I was going before I was able to ask it. Is this is this uh, inexperienced lawmaking? Is this grandstanding? I mean, is that just trying to puff themselves up to get more press than? Uh, maybe than they deserve by drafting some knee-jerk legislation that's going to get them votes or something. Well, of course they didn't draft it; it was handed to them. Uh, but Fair enough. They, they agreed. They agreed to sponsor it. And what they what they do when they get these model bills from advocacy, uh, it may be any number of sources that you got. It may be from a, a law enforcement apparatus. It may be from the district attorneys association. It may be from the from whoever. But he didn't draft this. You pointed out how much it looks like Alabama's, which. Alabama's was handed to them. This is sure. some some advocacy that wants this to become the law of the land because it's going to save people from being re-victimized because of recidivism. But in terms of your question, I don't know if they're grandstanding or they're stupid, but they're one or the other. <laughs> um, and so if I recall correctly, there there's an advocacy group that's pushing Marcy's law. And so they have something of a cookie cutter that they go through and try to find a state legislator that will sponsor it to try and move it through that local state. And that's how that has moved around all the different states. Could this be similar that there's some advocacy group like, like the, the pro chemical castration lobby or something like that? <laughs> there's no doubt there is an advocacy group. I just don't know yet. It has not manifested itself. We don't know who's pushing this, but since it's making its way around the country and there's such interest in it, clearly there's there's some background noise that's driving this, and I don't know what it is, but I'm hoping we can put this thing to sleep this week and put it on the table where it belongs in the trash heap of history until they want to draft a sensible piece of legislation. And it does, from, from my side, I'm super interested, like, perhaps if it worked, then like the the arguments would change but if it doesn't do you does that conversation come up at all or does that not matter in larry's universe it'll be mentioned that it that there's doubts about its efficacy but i'm not convinced that that's going to be the strongest argument whether something works or not we have the registry does it work well, I know. How do you? You can't prove the negative. Has it stopped somebody from doing something more after they got out of the prison? The answer is probably yes. It prevented someone from reoffending in some form or fashion, whether they thought some, you know, like the cognitive behavioral therapy, like it made them rethink their processes. Uh, maybe their supervision stuff prevented them from doing. It. Like, it would be hard to say that it is completely ineffective and has zero benefit. As, uh, but on the other side, does that outweigh the benefits uh, of trashing the Constitution and all of your other freedoms that go along with that? And there's where I'm going to focus my best effort on the Constitution, and particularly I'm going to focus on the 
unidentified cost of what this would run up. And there's so many identified costs. This treatment is very expensive from the limited research I've done. It could be hundreds of dollars. And, and you have to do this every couple of weeks. So it, it's a hugely expensive thing. And it would really need to be very narrowly tailored for certain offenses and for certain offender types, not to the whole universe of sexual offenses. This is just an example of, I'll say it again, stupidity. And, and but just can we can we dig in there for just a second? If if it is super expensive, and even somebody that's employed doing halfway well, and now you're talking about some new car payment level of of a quote unquote treatment, and you're unable to pay, and it puts you into the poorhouse, does that eventually become something like a debtor's prison? It does, and it also clogs the courts because there's a provision in there that says that there's. A the person there's a judicial process they don't spell it out but to determine indigency and that would be a time-consuming process as well that would cost money the courts really don't want all these responsibilities they have jammed caseloads already they don't want this job um so i saved the best for last uh, a, a familiar person to you and uh, a good friend of mine named fred asked this question ron DeSantis is calling for the death penalty for some pfr type offenses in florida he knows that SCOTUS, the Supreme Court, ruled that capital punishment can only be used in murder in cases of murder. DeSantis is convinced that will be reversed when challenges to his new law come up. Does Larry, that's you, think that this is likely to happen with our current conservative majority in um, the Supreme Court? If he'd asked me this five years ago before the last <laughs> administration, I would have said no. But after I turned out to be wrong about the sweeping ruling, uh, overturning Roe versus Wade, far more sweeping than what it really needed to do to address the question, I would be a hesitant to, to say that anything's beyond a possibility with this bunch we have up there now. Uh, I'm fairly confident with my arrogance about being able to kill this bill, but I'm not, <laughs> I'm not, I'm not nearly as confident. I don't want anything going to the Supreme Court. I really don't. Not anything that would benefit the PFR population because I'm not confident that anything good is going to come from them. Very well. Um, and, and we, if you want to vamp for 10 seconds while I ask chat again, if they have any other questions, um, let me ask you uh, what groups publish stats about PFRs having higher recidivism rates. Like she said, are you familiar with anybody? I don't, but that's a good question for Sandy because she's the recidivism guru at Darsal and, she has a wealth of recidivism, which I, I put in a circular file when people send that stuff to me. <laughs> it is fair. So I, we probably haven't covered this in such a long time about the Gatling gun on one side of the football field and you put in uh, 97 blank rounds and three real ones. And are you willing to stand on the other side and get shot at? That's, that's your 3% recidivism. That's the analogy I make. When you, I like it. I think it's fair. When you concede that you're willing to consider an encroachment on the Constitution because of recidivism, you've shifted the debate to an unwinnable debate because you've now acquiesced to the notion that if it's a worthy outcome, it's worthy of consideration. So then, how much recidivism is too much? No elected official can stand before their voters and say, well, the recidivism fairly low. And, uh, you know, I know that's a heinous crime and people suffer lifetime ramifications from the crime. 
it's not going to happen that often. So if you happen to be one of the ones that happens to you, it's just too bad. That's just not a sustainable political position if you understand politics. Therefore, I make the analogy that it's a discussion you do not want to have because you cannot win it. You have you reorder the conversation to something that's more grounded, which is the Constitution. And so I always pivot back to it. If they say, Larry, what about recidivism? I say, well, those numbers are all over the map, but the credible numbers tend to be very low. But that's not the issue here. The issue here is, can we punish people in this manner? We cannot force people to be castrated medically. We just can't do that in a constitutional uh, fashion. We just can't do that. Now, we could possibly figure out a way to do it voluntarily, but we cannot impose that as part of the punishment. So let's focus on the real issue here. And you get away from that recidivism in a hurry. But I, I guarantee you there's not too many people with a 3% recidivism that would allow me to shoot 100 bullets at them with only 90, with only uh, three of them being blank, uh, active and 97 being blank. You would not allow me to fire that at you. And that's what you're asking the public to do. Well, recidivism's not that bad since it's only 3%. Eh, go ahead. You just can't win that debate. Keep having it if you like. You won't win it, but if that's what you feel compelled to do, go ahead and do it. Um. Oh, so would you like to formally in, invite Stephanie Lord as a guest on the podcast to debate this? I don't think I would like to do that. No. <laughs> All right. We are just a, a, a handful of, of seconds shy of an hour. Um anything else do you want to shut it down and call it quits anything else you want to do before we go out get out i i actually think that we did a great program and this is one that should be easy to title because there's nothing competing for for a title that's true that's true very true uh you know so uh just to, to fill that out the the weekly program called on the media they are structured we we are structured similar to them they've been on the air for 20 years so I, we can't they can't be modeled after us where they have a feature segment and then they have a bunch of other news stories that they cover in their side of their hour. So, I mean, then they come up with a single title. Stefan, get on that one title, not confusing titles, right? That's correct. And Stefan, if you can't handle it, you just let us know and we'll find someone. <laughs> all right. So um, you can find all of the show notes over at registrymatters.co. Phone number 747-227-4477. I know I say that really fast, but I've said it like 200 times so you can find it and replay it, slow it down and all that stuff. But everything you need is at registrymatters.co and fypeducation.org. Oh, before we go, we have one particular supporter who constantly does supporterness and er and thank you so very much, Justin. You are a very generous individual and I thank you very much. And to all of our patrons, thank you so very much. Happy New Year. I hope you have a prosperous and happy year. And thank you for all the support that you guys and gals give us and continue to. So thank you. Yeah, so we're getting a new uh, uh, print subscriber. You passed it on to me this this afternoon. And I've, I'm going to fire up the subscription right away because I have great confidence that we will be compensated once I send the bill. Very good. Perfect. Well, um, everyone have a great night. Have a great rest of your weekend. Stay warm, dry, and whatever that is for you. If you've got like some Arctic blast coming your way or some rain or something, whatever that is. I hope you are a comfy person this weekend and we will talk to you in a week.
Have a great night, Larry. Sounds good. See you next week. You've been listening to FYP.